You're listening to EVH and Gear TV, brought to you by Design39 Media. Visit design39media.com for all your website, photography, and video production needs. Microphones for EVH and Gear TV are provided by Rode Microphones. An official Van Halen merchandise is provided by vanhalenstore.com. And now, here's your host from Ontario, Canada, EVH artist Eric Broadbent. Hey everyone, Eric here from the EVH and Gear TV Network, and I am here with Gary Kramer himself. We are guests of his beautiful home here. Gary, thank you so very much for having us out here. Uh, You're certainly welcome. We just got done wrapping up shooting at Winter Nam 2019, and we're taking our time here uh, slowly but surely. Uh, getting to look at the history of Kramer Guitars, Gary Kramer Guitars it's, it himself as well too. But I wanted maybe just have you kind of take us and our viewers back through a little bit of, uh, a little bit of the history and we're kind of literally s sitting where a lot of things started. Tell us where we are right now and um, maybe we'll take that further into the, uh, the start of Kramer Guitars. Sure, sure. So uh, where we are right now is on the central coast of California, halfway between Los Angeles and San Francisco. And my wife and I moved up here 10 years ago to get away from all the Los Angeles bullshit. Can I say that? Yeah, you can. You just did. <laughs> but I kind of want to start you guys off a little bit on the origin of Kramer. Before Kramer, there was Travis Bean, and Travis Bean was a partner of mine in car parts believe it or not. Okay. I was the parts manager for a company called Reseda Imports, and this is early 70s, and they specialized in Jaguars, MGs, Triumphs, if you remember the British Invasion yeah. cars. Yeah. And, you know, they were such shitty cars that they all, you know, they need parts all the time. So we were very busy. So we hired Travis. Travis comes in and he was a motocross rider and a very, very funny, humorous guy, tall, big, and we worked together for about a year, back and forth, hating our jobs. And then one Saturday morning, he comes in with this beautiful aluminum neck guitar. I'm like, I won't forget it to this day. And to me, it looked like a Smith & Wesson chrome barrel with a nice wood handle. That's, nice. what, it, that's what I saw, because sure. I wasn't into guitars at all. Um, that wasn't my thing, and neither was uh, was Travis. He he didn't play guitar, but he was an engineer and a designer. And he started talking to me. He said, "You know what, Gary? There's there's basically two guitar companies out there in the world. I mean, there was more, you know, mm -hmm. Rickenbacker and places, but there was only Fender and Gibson, and they really needed to push. They they needed something, you know, because you, you how do you enter a market unless you got something really really special, you know." That's going to turn heads. That's going to turn heads. So he said, I don't really have any money, and I did, because at that time before I met Travis, I was already buying uh, early model Corvettes with the interchangeable dashboards. Okay. They had the same side on each side. And I would use um, XKE Jaguar rack and pinion steering left-hand left -hand drive to interchange it, have the mechanics do it for me in the back, and then I would sell them to Australia for $12,000. So buy them and flip them. Blank. Yep. Yep. And, and in 1972, that was a lot of money, $12,000. Sure. So I had some cash, and I didn't know what I was going to do with it. So we decided to become partners. And I went down and I rented this building in Sun Valley on Sheldon Street. And it was one of these new developments where uh, there were industrial buildings. They were all 1,000-square-foot units. And so we took the one in the middle, everything else was still vacant. And I remember going to Sears, buying a bandsaw, 
drill press, uh, routers, everything we could basically use to start up with. Now, my job was to finance it and to make sure we got the sales going. It wasn't my job at all. To build to take or... A, to take a block of aluminum. Yep. No Lathe it. No, well, no lays, no oh. all by hand. Right. I've got photos I'll show you later. Sure. A Travis literally taking a block of aluminum and filing it down all wow. the way and then sanding it and then sliding it into a body and turning it into a guitar. So we built three prototypes, and it was exhausting to do the three prototypes, right? Away. And then we brought another fellow in by the name of Mark McElwee, which no one ever hears about Mark McElwee, but you're hearing it now. And, and if you look up on the YouTube channel and you look up Travis stuff, you'll find Mark. Okay. He was our actual luthier. He was the guy that really figured out how far the fret was from this to the bridge to that to this, you know, and all the pots and everything were special and what we used. And for me, this is a huge education, right, of what's going on. So we built three prototypes. And then in the meantime, um, we, uh, I think back then there was like one guitar magazine. It was Guitar Player. I think that was the only one that was available. And I said to myself, i got to run an ad in this, uh, this Guitar Player magazine, you know, so people know who we are. My roommate was a guy by the name of Larry Corby, and he was the head graphics something for one of these big advertising firms, I can't remember the name, but down in Los Angeles. And one night we were uh, in the living room, we were getting high, and I said, I really need a great ad. You know, can you, like, here's the guitar, figure this out. And you never saw the poster, right? I did, actually. Travis being guitar breaks the sound barrier. Yes, I did. That's awesome. I, I, I want to say one th funny thing there, because actually at the bottom, you had put, send $2 or whatever for a copy of this, and you were getting flooded by people. Well, how how'd you know that? I had a little bit of research. Oh, okay. <laughs> right, right, right. That was a mistake, by the way. Okay. Because the poster actually, uh, the poster or the, or the four-color bleed ad came out beautiful. And it was a $5,000 ad for one time and that's way back then it was way back then it was yeah a lot of money and like you said i made a mistake i said for a full color poster please send two dollars to travis bean you know sun valley california yeah and before you know it i had to open up a whole new department just for people to roll the posters <laughs> put them in there make a label for it and then put them together and then you know take them to the post office and then take the money to the bank and change it because money was coming in in yens, it was coming in in rupees. All currencies. Liras, everything, all yeah. currencies. So anyway, we have our prototypes ready. Our first NAM show is coming up and it's at the Marriott in Los Angeles. And it was just when NAM was kind of getting established. Mm -hmm. right? And the show was not even close to what it is today yeah. or what we just experienced. The show was so small and you couldn't even get Namthrax back then. Wow. It wasn't enough people you know, yeah. to, to bring it to you. So we're in the booth. There was myself, uh, Mark McElwee, and Travis. We had a, uh, I think we had a Fender Hollywood amp. I can't remember exactly what amp it was, but we had one amp in there. And back then there wasn't guitar centers. All there were were uh, brick and mortar, mom and pop stores yeah. all over the place. No huge places. So mom and pop would come over and they'd see this beautiful guitar, which I wish I could show you guys right now, but we'll show you later. Right. Because right. I have some mint condition ones that have never ever been seen that are in my guitar safe. Original Ernie Ball strings on it that I actually called Ernie and he sent them to me. So never been changed. Never been changed, you know. So people are sitting down and 
I, I didn't really know what to do, you know, so I said, Travis, I think we should make everybody buy. We had three lines. We had a, a TB-1000, and we had a base, and we had a TB-500, which is a lower end. The TB-1000 sold, retailed for $1,000. Okay. Uh, the TB-500, I think, retailed for seven fifty, and so on. I don't remember what the base sold for. But we uh, made the dealers buy all three to become a, to become a dealer. That's your buy-in. That was no problem. Everybody... Yeah. Everybody wanted it, you know, yeah. and they all gave me purchase orders. So in the background, there's this guy standing over there like this looking, you know, and a real tall guy. And he taps me on the shoulder. He goes, Gary, he goes, my name's Lee Sands. I'd like to be your European rep. And I'm 29 years old, and I'm hearing somebody say, I want to be your European that rep. That sounds pretty inviting. That's, God, that's, that sounds like my ship just came. <laughs> by, you know? So he said, but let me give you a tip. You have so many people at your booth. You're the, you're you're winning everybody at this show. Ask for CWO. And I said, what's CWO? And he goes, it's cash with order. Okay. Don't take purchase orders. Take checks. I said, I don't know if I can do that. Because you felt maybe not confident enough, and right? Yeah, I did. I said, I don't know if I can do that. He goes, trust me. So I, he's watching me. Next person comes in, you know, I don't know where they're from. And I said, well, we require three units, and this is the total, but uh, we, we need to have cash with order if you want to be a dealer. To reach in their pocket, write a check. Had you not asked, you wouldn't have. It wouldn't have got it. Exactly. Anyway, long story short, the the show lasted the whole weekend. Uh, we finished up with somewhere around three hundred and fifty, four hundred thousand dollars in cash. Oh boy. Checks. Yeah, <laughs> oh, checks. Yeah. Hopefully, they were going to be good. That's right. The purchase orders didn't even. You know, good thing Lee Sands came in early enough to tell me that because I only had like three or four purchase orders. The rest of it was cash. That's right. So with that money, we went back to Sheldon Street and all these units that were vacant, we now leased them all all the way to the street and we started the woodworking department, we started the, the machine shop department, the, the spray booth, my office, uh, assembly, everything, you know, shipping, we did the whole thing. And then now we have dealers. And my promise time to the dealers were six months. Okay. I have no idea why I said that, but I figured if I didn't say that, I'd blow the deal. Yeah, and that sounds comfortable. Six months is not too bad. So one of my dealers was uh, uh, Grayson's in Town Music in, on 48th Street in Manhattan. And the one of the owners was Dennis Barardi. He was partners with Bernie, Bernie Grayson. And he was my dealer, and he was right next door to, I think, Sam Asher Manny's. I don't remember which one, but... So Sam or, or Manny didn't get the franchise. And they, from then on, they never spoke to me because I gave it to Dennis. Because Dennis and I were about the same age. You mm -hmm. know, we both played tennis. And I, I kind of felt comfortable with him. So. so now he's got the only franchise for Travis Beans on 48th Street in the 70s. That's where every musician in the world would buy their guitars. Yeah. The way. I mean, you had to buy your guitar there you know, or something. That's part of history. Part of history. So Dennis is calling me on the phone now. He goes, hey, Gary, it's four months. You think I'm going to get any guitars here? So I'd go up to the to Travis's uh, area where he's got this block of aluminum, and, and he's filing them, and I'm going back to my <laughs> my desk, and I'm looking at all the Oh, orders. no. Not enough filing and a lot more orders. And, and now Travis has decided he wants to become a drummer. Oh, didn't he, didn't he kind of take over your work area as a bit of a, a recording studio? Yes, he did. Uh-oh. Oh, he oh the, no. He took the back end of that. Yeah. Went out and bought about $300 worth of egg cartons 
and stuck them all over the wall for <laughs> acoustics. And then, because he was more of a, he was more of a less of an inventor too, so he invented this new drum stand that you could like fold up and take with you. Oh, that's cool! And, and everything would your cymbals and things would fit right into these little holes, so you could you'd be all set and the positions would be proper. Did that become anything for him, or did it get scrapped? No, no, no it got scrapped. But when I go up there to see how we were doing, instead of him doing this, right, he was playing drums. No. And that's about the time Jerry Garcia and all his crew started floating around. Oh, okay. They started coming in. So I go back up to Dennis, and I said to Dennis, I said, I don't think you're going to get your guitar in six it, months. He yeah. goes, why not? He goes, well, he says, I'm going to fly out there and see what's going on. I says, okay, yeah, that's a good idea. Why don't you do that? So he flies out and we meet, and I'm living in Marina Del Rey at the time, so I'm close to the airport. I pick him up, we drive up to Sun Valley, and we're in my office talking, and he start, and he's and Dennis is a drummer too, and he starts hearing these drum beats, right? He goes, what's going on? He goes, well, Travis is making drum guitars. <laughs> so we walked up there, and he says, you don't have to tell me anymore, I'm never gonna get my guitar, am I? I said. Not for a long, long time. So what, there's some fire under somebody's butt there. What happened from there? Well, there was no fire because Travis had taken the, the he had a patent on his aluminum neck, but it was, it was in his name and not in the partnership's name. Oh, that's, that's rough. So, you know, he could do whatever he really wanted to do at that particular point. But, but I said to him, I said, look, I can't, I can't be in this position because I've made all these commitments to people all over the world. You were the front man, you know, you, yeah, taking the orders, taking the cash. And, I, and Travis hadn't met anybody, you know, and all he wanted to do was, you know, his head got pretty big, mm -hmm. okay? That's where he, he kind of really wanted, and I think deep down inside he wanted to be a rock star. Right. If there had been CNC machines or any kind of machinery that we could have turned these billets of aluminum into, it might have worked. It would have worked. Yeah. They didn't exist yet. They had these things called numerical control machines. They were like uh, little ribbons with little poles punched in them. Okay. And like these little stylus would follow it and they would tell a lathe what to do, which took forever, you know. And then so anyway, so Travis and I, we didn't see eye to eye any longer. You know, he was doing his thing. I'm doing my thing. Dennis says to me, he says, why don't you come back to New Jersey? And I'm from California, right? So I'm going to go back to New Jersey. I'm thinking, hmm. 30 that's, a, blows, 30 that's a move. We just talked about whether back home yeah, you and I so, experience opposites. So I gave some thought, and I said, okay, yeah, you know what? Let's do that. So I go back to New Jersey with Dennis. I put everything in storage. I'm driving this little MGB that I had left over from Reseda Imports. Never seen a parkway before in my life. Had no idea that you had to pay to go on a parkway. Right. Because here they're freeways, right? That's, that's right. You know, tunnels and bridges and everything else. You know, by the time I got to Dennis's place, I was completely broke. <laughs> Just for paying the toll. Sure, sure. So Dennis lived in Woodbridge, and he had a basement. And before we got started, we would sit down there, and we would just we'd roll a joint, and we'd just start fantasizing about being the biggest guitar company in the world. And I said, what do you think we should call the first guitar, you know? And we, and we both love Mercedes, so the first one was a 450G, uh, the 450 Mercedes. And nice. from, from then on, it just, you know, went from there. So we didn't start making guitars till we met Phil Patillo. He passed away several years ago, but he was uh, Springsteen's main luthier, because he's right there in Asbury Park. And he's a designer and everything else, so we took the new idea that I had the 
to give because Travis has a patent on a full aluminum neck. Okay. So the only complaint we, we got, it was cold to the touch and it was just too heavy. It was pretty exhausting for a guitar player to be on stage and have that much weight for all his, for the length of time his gig was. But for somebody who was playing in Toronto or in Colorado in the winter, and, and the guitar just came right off the plane in one of those flight cases. Even worse. It was, the neck was like freezing. So Dennis and I sat around and we figured, well, here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna keep the aluminum because the aluminum proved that sustain was there. And strength, that, sustain, yeah. Sustain, strength. And you know, never gonna have to have any warpage problems and everything's gonna be straight. No more truss rods, we're done with truss rods. This is, this is the 70s, come on, let's go. <laughs> Uh, so we go to Phil with our idea, and I said to Phil, I said, you know, I think this is what I'd like to have. Do you think you can do it? And he poured it, uh, the first prototype he poured uh, with cast aluminum. Okay. So he made a mold, we poured it with cast aluminum. Then he put wood in there, and then he made two of them, and he put it on the lathe, two of them together back to back, and we spun them to get the right neck sizes. And polished it up, made bodies for them, and then he said, what do you want to use for fingerboard? I said, well, no, we're going to use ebony or rosewood. What else are we going to use? He goes, no, I think we should use this thing called ebonol. Ebonol. Have you heard about that one? I have, and I don't know enough about it. Ebonol is, and I know you remember the old telephones, the black telephones. Of course, had, had, yep, had them. They were all black, right? Well, that material is ebonol. Really? Yeah. And so is, I always remember them as pl plastic, but it's, it's harder than plastic? Harder than plastic. Okay. Yeah. So we named it ebonol. Okay. It's actually called something else, but we call that ebonol because it, you know, ebony, ebony. Yeah. Is that your term? You actually termed yeah, it? That's that, our term. Oh, that's cool. We coined that. We coined it. That's neat. Uh, so we used the ebonol on there, and that even made that neck even stronger than it was because now it was a T structure, so you couldn't bend it at all. No. no couldn't bend it at all. Let's see. Am I going too fast here? No. No. Going a little bit too fast. Before Dennis and I were doing the guitars, we were selling flight cases for Calzone. Okay. And I know you know Calzone cases. Yes. Well, Joe Calzone was making cases in his garage in Connecticut. And we went up to Joe and he said, you know what, Joe, you're the only guy making these kind of cases. We'd like to be your exclusive reps. Perfect. And he made us his exclusive reps. I still have our contract back here. I have, I have all the old history, you know, letters and things. I know. I've seen some already. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah. So we had an, we opened up an office in Manasquan, because Dennis had a beach house. He lived in Woodbridge, we had a beach house in Manasquan, had a back porch, and we hired this uh, gal by the name of Gail. We're at the point where we've got a brand new design neck, and we can take it to the patent office, and the patent office only requires a few little modifications, by the way, to change a patent. Right. So Travis, on his headstock, had a T, it looked like that. So we eliminated the top of the T, and that's where the V came from. That's the iconic, yeah. It's the iconic, and what's even better than that is when it didn't have tuners on it, it rang at 440. <laughs> like a tuning fork. Yeah, it really did. Ping. I mean, that wasn't, you know, that was just something that just happened, so. So Dennis and I now, we have um, two or three prototypes, I don't remember exactly how many, but we don't have now the big financing we need to put this into big production because there wasn't an AM show with $350,000. So we went to, we were both Catholics, and we went to this uh, church one night, and sitting next to us was this guy by the name of Henry Vaccaro. And I'm sure we all heard of Henry Vaccaro. I know the name very well. 
and he was listening to us talking and he said kind of interested in what you guys are doing and so can you come to my office tomorrow and let's talk about it so we told him this basic story I'm telling you right now and he says you know what I want to be part of this he goes how much do you need and I says well I don't really know we didn't have not figured that out he says I'll tell you what so he reaches down he writes a check for $35,000 he says here's 35000 plus I have a 10,000 square foot warehouse at 1111 Green Grove Road, Neptune, New Jersey, which is a very special address, by the way. That's right, we'll talk about that. And I said, wow. So next night, Dennis and I were back, and you know, we're like this on our beds, you know. Here we go. Ship came in again, (laughs) and here we go. So we went to the warehouse, we ordered up everything we needed to do. Still, there wasn't any CNC machines, but technology got a little better, a little, you know, because these guitars, these aluminum necks were a pain in the ass to make, you know, and after they were all put together, they all had to be buffed. Mm. And because of the aluminum, every time you would buff the aluminum onto the wood, like say you had maple inlay right, or inset on the back. You have residue from the aluminum? The aluminum would turn the maple gray. All right. Then if you took the gray off the, um, off the maple, then it would turn the aluminum another color. So it's know? fighting one another. Fighting one another. So we had to tape them off and it was just, just so tedious, you know, but when they were finished, they were beautiful, the beautiful guitars. So now there's myself, Henry Vaccaro, and now Dennis says, I know this guy that used to come into my um, uh, music store. He was a salesman for Norlin. Norlin used to be Gibson, that's what Gibson used to be. Gibson bought Norlin, then it changed. But it was always Gibson, but Norlin owned him. And his name was Pete LaPlaca. I don't know if you remember that. I've heard, yes, I do know the name. Pete yes. LaPlaca. And Pete came in, and he was Mr. Mustache like this, and Mr. Cool, and he, you know, he, he knew what basically what to do with all the dealers out there, and we didn't, so we brought him in. So now we have in our we started a corporation. So there's me and Dennis, Henry Vaccaro, and Pete Laplaca. We've got our three prototypes. Phil Patillo has no participation in the business at all. He's just there to make what we told him to make. And we go to a Chicago NAM. And we prepared really well for this. We had a, a two-story booth. We are like one of the very first people who got a two-story booth. And you had the giant uh, neck. As and we had a 20-foot neck on a pedestal that rotated with spotlights on it. So no matter where you were, when you walked into Chicago, um, I can't remember the, the place. What's the name of that uh, convention center there? The McCormick. Okay, I didn't know. No, I didn't know that. McCormick place. No matter where you walked in, you would see this... Net. So finding that booth is not a problem. It a problem. It's a beacon, bringing it right to it. And then, uh, ironically, these guys didn't know what CWO was. Okay. No, neither did uh, Pete LaPlaca. He's just a sophisticated old guy from Norman. I said, here's what we got to do, guys. Trust me on this one. We're gonna, people come in here, they're going to want these guitars. This is the beginning of Kramer now. Kramer does not even exist until that, this particular day. And I, I said, and Pete was in charge of now doing all the orders, you know. Cash of the order, cash of the order, end of the day, end of the, the two-day at NAMM show, I think it was $500,000. Oh, man. Okay. Again, back then, insane compared to today. Yeah. But we, we had the backup and all the facilities, you know, to, to produce what we committed to back then. So, so I stayed with the company for probably another... See, this is 1975, 76. I left in 77 because I, 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 I remember I had moved to Hackensack 
um, which is close to Manhattan because I was still going back and forth into Dennis's place across the George Washington Bridge. A lot of commute. And my grandmother lived in uh, Queens, okay. which was still pretty cool because I could see her once in a while. Nice. And everybody at the Kramer factory, by the way, was Italian. There was one person there that was not Italian by their last names, Vaccaro, Berardi, La Placa, Gepetti, everything, everybody's name ended in a valve except mine. And I was actually the only Italian there because I was born in Naples, Italy. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay. I came to Los Angeles when I was two years old. So I said, you want me to make this, you want me to change my name to Kramer-Ready? Would you guys feel better if I put two eyes on the end of it? <laughs> yeah, and they, I said, no, it's, you don't need it, don't need to. No, so again, launching of the brand name Kramer, and then uh, I was with them in the production and in the designing and everything that we could do. I got out of the office. Oh, I had a great office, by the way. Mm -hmm. uh, something that I had never experienced before, because I'm from Los Angeles. Yeah, your first big time office. Well, it wasn't a big time, it wasn't that. It was like when I looked out my window, I would see squirrels and raccoons. Okay. And I'd never seen one before. All I've ever seen was rats and helicopters. You know. Okay, well that's a step up. So, and it was kind of weird. I would sit there at my desk and I'd look out at all this greenery, because New Jersey is pretty green. And I didn't know if I could really handle this too much. So I would get back in the MG and drive 60 miles up the parkway to, to Hackensack. Lived on the 16th floor, had a doorman, which I had no idea what a doorman was. Kind of cool. Hello, sir. And I'm still young now. I'm still 29. I don't think I'm even 30 yet. And one uh, one morning, uh, I woke up and I, because I, I couldn't afford to get in a garage. The apartment was $400 a month. I wanted a garage for the MG. It was an additional 100 This is in the 70s. Right? Yeah. I said, no, I'll just park it on the street. <laughs> so one morning, I wake up and I look out my balcony, get out and I look and all I see is white. I mean, I'm talking white. Now, where the hell's my car? Buried, or is it gone? Do you remember those little Union 76 balls you put on the top of your antenna? Yes, yep. That's all I could see, this much. You were buried that much? Buried that much. So I go downstairs to the doorman, his name is Pete. I go, Pete, what do I do? He goes, oh, you're gonna have to wait for the plow truck to come through. And then dig yourself out. And then dig yourself out. And I said, oh man, this is gonna be something. You know, I've never done this before. You know? So it all happened, and uh, I, they made some clearing for my car. Then I took my key out to stick it inside the unlock it. It was probably froze. It wouldn't go in. Oh, no. <laughs> so I figured I better call the auto club now, right? So the auto club says, no, just take a cigarette lighter and heat up your key. And I go, and stick it in. He goes, you're kidding me. That's all I have to do. <laughs> yeah, it works. What do you know about this? Oh, yeah, right? for sure. Well, I live in Canada, my friend. Okay. Well, in Southern California, you don't, you know, you, you don't know. And and I didn't even own wool. I didn't even know what wool was. You know, I had Penny's Towncraft t-shirts and Levi's and, and Jack Purcell blue tip tennis shoes. And here it was, 13 degrees. And I'm going, man, what's up? But, you know, I, I, I assimilated to everything that was going on. And then I got to a point where... Um, I didn't really want to stay back in the East Coast anymore. You know, there was a lot of problems going on with myself and Dennis. Dennis started having a little bit of an ego trip. With I started having a little bit of an ego trip. Henry Vaccaro now wants to be part of the whole thing, you know, because there's all kinds of new endorsees coming in. There's people wanting to do this and do that. So, so I said, you know what, I need to go back to California, so there's got to be something that uh, we can do. Here. Like a position for you within the company still. Yeah. 
So they came up with this really nice package. You know, they came up with a nice royalty on every guitar okay. that they made. And, you know, and they were doing, they weren't doing that good yet. You know, they were still kind of struggling in the beginning. But I said, that's fine. That'll, that'll take care of me. And then and they said, how about you become West Coast Artist Relations Manager? So you work directly with the artists and kind of handle them off to, you know, what their needs are, that kind of stuff, how many they need. Well, that's what, what I was supposed to do. Right. But I never did. Okay. I never did that. <laughs> <laughs> so I went back to Los Angeles. Oh, before, before I go back to Los Angeles, so I go any further, okay? I just want to let you know that uh, one day I'm at Dennis's place on 48th Street and Stanley Clark comes in. And I had absolutely no idea who Stanley Amazing Clark was. Amazing bassist. Oh, the best in the world yeah. back there. Right? School days, right? Isn't that Stanley Clark? Yeah. yeah. So uh, Dennis says, Stanley, I'm glad you're here. I, I want you to try this new bass that we made. So we're in the back room and I got pictures tomorrow. I'll show you. And he's playing it and you can see his face go from a frown to a little bit of a smile. And, he says, you know what, Gary, can you come to my, uh, rec I'm recording tonight, can you come to my recording studio tonight and I'll record with it, and if I like it, I'll endorse it and I won't even charge it. Wow. I said, well, that's what I said, wow. I said, where's the recording studio? He goes, Electric Ladyland. Oh, come on. And then I went, wow. Yeah, with the capital. <laughs> yeah, that's I mean, Jimi Hendrix, everything. Yeah. So I can't remember what street it was on, but it was way down in the basement somewhere, and they had all these pinball machines of all these great artists, you know, from Mick Jagger had an old pinball machine, you know, and so, and then Dennis and I were both there, and he didn't come on for his uh, recording session until three o'clock in the morning. We're exhausted, right? But then he, he did his session, did it for about an hour, and he came out and he goes, boys, you got the deal, man. This is the best bass I've ever played. Our first endorsee. Perfect, Stanley Clark. I did not know he was the first. So that's good to know. He was our he was our first endorser, yeah. you know, for for the bass. So speed forward here. Now I'm back in Los Angeles. I'm sitting in my apartment in Marina del Rey, looking out over the ocean, thinking about all these wonderful royalty checks that's going to be coming in. And things are going to be looking good. Things are going to be looking good. All I need to do now is just go out and buy myself a new surfboard and go surfing because mm -hmm. that's what I used to do a lot. But the royalty checks didn't come in that fast. Uh-oh. It was like a phone call a week, you know. Where is that? Uh, it's in Where's the mail? That? Where's it at? It's in the mail, you know, this and that, this and that. It took about two years, finally, to get them to get rolling and start, you know, paying me the money that they needed. Then then Henry got on the phone one day. He said, hey, Gary, how about if we just give you a buyout right now? I said, that sounds good. Let's talk about it, you know. So they came up with a, a nice figure and gave me a buyout, and then... My relationship with Kramer at that point was just NAMM shows. So every time they were out here, uh, early 80s, uh, I, I, let me see, when did Eddie come on board? Eddie came in early 80s, I don't remember what year. 83, something 80, like that. Yeah, someone yeah. in someone the neighborhood. And then it was, you know, it was Eddie and Floyd and all that just coming together at one time that pretty much put Kramer on the map. Because I can remember, because I would go back to the factory once in a while see what was going on and, and Dennis said you know what we just can't keep these guitars on the shelves they're just flying off the shelves like they're going crazy we can't make them here anymore they were making them in Canada they were making them in Japan that's a I want to ask you a question about that with Canada now I've heard some terms from back and forth we had, we had a guitar company I don't I think they're out of uh, out of business now but they're called Lado was Lado involved in I think it was called Lado okay you know yeah they made some nice guitars so that, that I heard some terms of that so I think okay. it was I think it was Lado yeah so we we had no you know we were selling so many guitars 
that we had to go somewhere to do it. And Korea wasn't really open yet for... Right, like it is today. Like it is today. China wasn't there, you know, so... But Japan was. And we were a big hit in Japan, by the way. Mm-hmm. I mean, even today, there's Kramer Forums. And, oh, yeah. And anyway, so um, that's how Kramer got started. That's the beginning of Kramer. So Gary Jr. is playing, uh, playing the first... Tell me about that bass that he's playing. He's playing, the, he's playing bass number one very first bass we've ever made that was given to me and no one's ever played it before except Eric Jr. Fantastic. Wait, I think you played it first. Yeah, I played it first. That's okay. What do you think of that? Crazy. And then uh, after I was gone, they converted into wooden necks because it was too costly to continue on with the aluminum necks. And with that, like I said, came Eddie and came in all those, uh, Vivian Camp, all those people that came in, you know, that, uh, that played Kramer. I think I gave you that list last night. Yeah, yeah, you've got, every, you've got so many people on there, the Richie Samboras and McMars. I mean, it continues, I mean, to this day, it's, it's one of the biggest artist roster, you know, list, period. Exactly, exactly. And the parties that Kramer would throw back then, it was, they were incredible parties. You know, I'll bet. Yeah, they were absolutely incredible, especially when they were here in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm parties were incredible. Well, I heard some stories too that back in the day that some of these parties were so extravagant and the amount of things that they would, you know, kind of wine and dine the artists, like that caused some financial strain, I think, in some places too. Oh yeah, absolutely, because Dennis, okay, well, uh, you know, with Floyd Rose, Floyd, Dennis bought so many tremolos from Floyd that Floyd bought Dennis a Ferrari and drove it up to his house. He was living in uh, some special place in New Jersey. They don't remember the name. Of it. Right. It's kind of like a Beverly Hills of New Jersey. Sure. But but Dennis never paid him. Oh wow! <laughs> and Floyd repossessed the Ferrari. Oh, that's great! I never knew that story. Well, I've always told people too, as well too. Obviously, you know from my other shows on the on the YouTube channel, we, EVH was my first channel. It's and this is my first show, still the predominant big show on on my channel. But I always said that the the marriage between Kramer, Eddie, and Floyd Rose um, was. Perfect, and I think that's changed manufacturing of guitar, like manufacturers across the world today. That synergy between Kramer and Floyd Rose really put that brand on the map as one of the, probably the best guitar at the time on the market. Would you agree with that? I'll agree with you 100%. Um, because when I used to, I was, now I'm, I'm back in California now, and when I would talk to Dennis on the phone, he would say, you know, we met this guy by the name of Floyd Rose, and I didn't know who Floyd Rose was, and he said, well, he just you come up with this tremolo system with a locking nut on it that, uh, you know, a person like Eddie would just love to have. So we put it all together and he says the people are going crazy over these things. Okay, well, unfortunately, my royalties are based on the V-neck aluminums. And you left after that, so now it's, uh, yeah, so, oh yeah, it's a bummer. So, so the V-neck aluminums are now put aside and now they're all doing wooden necks and, well, that's okay, you know, but still deep side my heart, you know, I was always looking at every guitar magazine, you know, every time I went to a market and I was standing in line, I picked a guitar magazine and I'd look and I'd, they'd always have an ad. Kramer run the greatest ads. Remember? They did. Oh, they sure did. And then they bought, they brought uh, McEnroe. Do you remember when they brought yes, McEnroe? Yes, they had tennis board? and they, yeah, yeah. they had tennis and, the, and a guitar, so one's playing tennis like a guitar, <laughs> tennis racket. Yeah, so I, I always, always kept up even though my involvement was hardly anything there at all. Um, so at this time, I'm, I'm not involved in the music scene, guitars at all, I'm now 100% into real estate. That's where I'm at right now. My head was just totally into real estate. 
and this is 1979 now here in Los Angeles and it was another real estate boom mm -hmm. the first house I bought with my credit card and the commissions that I got from my I was working for Century 21 so my commissions and my credit card bought me my first house in Venice for $63,000. Okay. I sold it six months later for $130,000. So that's a nice profit, six okay. months. But today I know what it's worth because my wife's house was around the corner. She just sold it last year. It's like a million four, two bedroom, one bath, yeah. small lot. Wow. Okay. You know, that's, that's Venice real estate. Sure. So I continued on with the real estate for the longest time and then I found out they were going to convert these apartment buildings in Culver City from apartments to condos. And if you lived in there, you would get a 50% discount when they convert it. So if the unit was going to sell for 100 grand and you live there, you'd get it for 50. Nice. So what I did was I went out and I rented a whole bunch of apartments in different uh, complexes that I knew that were going to be converting because I went down to the city to see who, who applied for the permit. I know where you're going with this. And I sublet it out. If, if the rent was $200 a month, I said, listen, I'll let you have it for $75 a month, but you need to get out when I tell you to get out. Yeah, so don't plan long term if you know. Exactly. Yep. So I was able to get five, six, seven of these places, you know, and I could turn them over, you know, just like that, make 50000 50000 50000 you know. So m more money was rolling in in the real estate business than it ever rolled in. In guitar in business. In guitar business. Yeah. That really spun me out because I, I was drinking coffee, I was drinking Jack Daniels, I was probably doing things I shouldn't be doing, and uh, it, I did five years of that and I couldn't do it anymore, so I grabbed my wife and we went to Italy for three, four months, just to chill. Mm -hmm. And then I had too much of Italy. Okay. And I had to come back to Los Angeles, right? So we're back in LA and what am I gonna do? What do I do now? So, are you familiar with um, mailboxes, etc., or the UPS store? Yes. Oh, yeah, we have UPS store back home in Canada. Yeah. Right. So, my other business, which is still going today, 40 years, started in 1980 or 81. Uh, it's called Marina Packing, mm -hmm. and it was the very, very first conceptual uh, UPS store or. Uh, like a courier. The or mailboxes, et cetera, place where yeah. I could bring something in, you know, and you'd pack it and you'd create it and yep. you'd ship it out, right? Well, I had this little place on Washington Boulevard in Venice, Marina del Rey, Venice, right there. And I would close every day at noon and it'd say, gone surfing, see you tomorrow. I didn't think I was going to do any business. Right. But I never could go surfing because every, every, the day that I opened, people started bringing stuff into me to send away. I had no idea that so many people were leaving LA because they couldn't make it. Yep. And they always had record albums. They always had a turntable. They always had a little portable TV set. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and they always lived in Florida or New York or New Jersey. They needed ship there. So, yeah, never got a chance to go surfing, except on the weekends. And the business just got bigger. People started bringing bigger things. And I realized that this is. This now, is freight cool. maybe into freight, right? Now I got into freight. Then I got into the art world because I, I went to Beverly Hills. They had all these art galleries. Guy, guy goes in there and he buys a $15,000 Leroy Neiman. He needs it packed and shipped carefully. And he, yeah, and he lives in New York. How does he get it there? And I said to the uh, to the curator, I said, how does he get it there? And she goes, I don't know. We usually leave it up to him. I said, how would you like to not lose that sale? And oh, say, I can take care of it. You're now the guy. Well, how do you know how much it's going to cost? I said, you just let me worry about that. You yep. just call me, give me the dimensions, you know, and I'll 
give you a price and if he likes the price, you make the sale, take the money and we go. So that was one of the biggest things that I, I did in the early, early 80s is handle all that art stuff that was going all over. From there it went to uh, the redevelopment of Las Vegas because Las Vegas hotels like to change their decor every five, six, seven years. And I know this has got nothing to do with the guitars. Oh, that's it's okay. It's very it's fascinating. Gary Kramer being what mm -hmm. what I do just of course. into what you're going to see. Fans will love this stuff. Trust me. <laughs> they will. So then we get I get an order from uh, Donald Trump. You're kidding. Not Donald Trump himself, but Donald Trump. He's building in his New organization, Jersey. whatever. Yeah, he's building a casino in New Jersey, and they ordered. They had a, I think it was a 2,000 room hotel. Each room had uh, two of these. You know, just decor pictures, mm -hmm. and you know, but that's like four thousand pieces. You know, wow. So, I uh, get, I bid the job, and they called me back and they said, Gary, you got the bid. Nice. Pick up the stuff over here and do this. So I pack it and create it and do this, and I got four thousand pieces of art that weigh on because they got glass on. Right? Yeah, it's a lot of weight. All the way to New Jersey, and delivered, installed, nothing broken. Thirty days go by. No payment. Uh-oh. So I said, ah, I better not bug this Donald Trump guy. You know, yeah, it sounds like it might be hard to get a hold of. And so 60 days go by, and I finally get a hold of accounts payable. And they give me the runaround. No, that guy's not in now. He'll call you tomorrow. And I got to run around for another 10 more days. Finally, I call. I get this guy, and he goes, you know what, Gary? Your bid was, I think, 90000 to do the job. I think you better take forty-five, else we're not going to pay you. I said, what? So I said, hang on a second. So I put him on hold. I go, they're going to f me here. I yeah. know this, right? They're just gonna, and they did that to a lot of people, right? Because they have no recourse now. And sometimes the smaller guys might say, okay, I guess I'm just going to have to accept it or nothing. So I took, I calculated all my costs. My costs were like $42,000, right? So mm -hmm. if I could recapture my costs, I won't really, you know, be done. So I picked up the phone and I said, when can I get the money? He said, well, I'll transfer it to your account right now. Just give me your, your numbers. So, bam, got, you know, got screwed out of like $40,000. That's a big chunk of change. So I'm thinking if you would have got that 45000 the full 45000 that would have been a huge launch for the business. A huge launch, but it was more than that. It was a learning experience. Right. Don't feel that just because they're a huge corporation that you're going to get paid. So I let myself go one more time. I did a job for the Marriott Corporation. It was okay. about $30,000. 60 days go by, no money. Here we go again. Here we go again. Then I did one for Disney, you know. I mean, how could Disney not have Yeah, the Disney's, they're not going to let anything tarnish their reputation. Well, what they do is they plan on this, you know. They oh. plan on not paying you for 60, 90, 120 days. But, you know, you need, when you're a little guy, you need those funds. Yeah, and that money's collecting interest in their own banks. So it took me three blows, Trump, Marriott, and Disney, to realize that I will never give credit ever again. So then I got now so big I had to move to a 15,000 square foot facility in El Segundo with loading docks and all that, which is right next door to Mattel and Raytheon. You were there. You is that where we were at yesterday? That's right. the place? Okay, awesome. That's cool. And Mattel is right down the street where they started, by the way. And then they started coming in. They wanted to get there. They want to do some Barbie filming in Germany. They need all their stuff packed and created. Shipped overseas. And, uh, you know, the bill's like six, $7,000. And they said, just bill us. I go... No. I don't think so. <laughs> no, can't do that anymore. So from then on, ever since I left there, from then on, they come down with an AMX card, a black one. Nice. Everybody does now. So yeah. I learned my lesson the hard way. 
That's almost like uh, ca cash with order, right? And if you go back to the guitars, exactly. cash with order. You know, cash is king, baby. That, cash is king. That's right. Well, that's absolutely fantastic. Well, here's what we'll let, as we wrap up this part of the interview here before we get down to uh, Gary Kramer Guitar Sellers. And, and Leo Scala. Yeah. Which, which brought it in. So. Yeah. Um, someone like yourself who makes iconic guitars, you've been involved from the you know day one with Kramer, with Gary Kramer Guitars yourself as well too. That's something that you, when you ride a bike, you might lose a little bit, but you never forget how to ride a bike. Do you see, ever foresee a day come again where with the right design, the right thing, would you, do you think Gary Kramer guitarist will um, bring out some more models as well? I don't think so. You think you're, you're comfortable now? Yeah. Yeah. yeah no, I don't nothing wrong so. with it. You've, you've given a legacy. There's a guitars out there. They're highly sought after. So there's nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that. And, and I, have a, I have a wine label now. You know, it's called Gary Kramer Guitar uh, Syrah, mm -hmm. Gary Kramer uh, Guitar Chardonnay, and so on. Olive oil? Olive oil, you know. That's so. fantastic. And some award-winning, too, from what award I hear. Award-winning, yeah. yeah. Gold, gold medal two times in a row. Uh, because, you know, the olives that I grow here on this particular property, which you guys will see in a little while, nobody decided uh, or ever thought about growing them. Yeah. It's, it's like, again, how do you enter into the guitar business unless you have something really special? Because you got competition all over the place. I know. Strong competition. Yes. Well, everybody in California grows olives, but they don't grow Castelvitranos. There you go. <laughs> so I do. Coming out here, I, I have so many things I didn't realize when we were out here. Like back home, the wife, she loves almonds, loves them. And you have all kinds of almond grow, like uh, fields out here. And obviously everywhere you look, we're in the area that we're at today. Uh, it's wine country, it's grapes everywhere. What else is grown out here? Obviously, the olives, of course, like you mentioned. but Well, they got their pomegranates are grown out here. Oh, wow, okay. Um, I don't think there's, you know, grapes are, is the biggest thing. They've taken over just about everything. But this used to be, this all, this property here all used to be almond trees. Okay. And I have almond trees here that are so old that I can't even cut them with a chainsaw because they're oh, wow. so hard. Now, do they still produce or no? No. No, okay. They, they quit producing. Right. There's, some, there's a bunch of dead ones around here, but to get them out of the ground, you have to take your tractor and pull them out of the ground, but you can't cut them. It's like a rock, almost like a fossil, maybe. It's a fo they would, if you could cut them, you'd have the best firewood ever. Cause okay, it would burn slow? It burns really slow. But right. You'll go through maybe five uh, chainsaw blades just to get uh, maybe four or five little not pieces. Not worth it. Not worth it. No. Well, this has been fantastic. In a moment here, we're going to take a jump down the street just a little bit. We're going to go visit Gary Kramer Guitar Sellers, and uh, we're going to have a nice look at some incredible guitars that some of them you've never seen before, unless you've been able to attend uh, the, the establishment. But we're looking forward to that. And this has been a great little sit-down and chat, and a nice, actually, it's getting a little cooler right now. Yeah. As, as we're talking here, the temperature's changed maybe by 10 degrees, and it's, it's been a beautiful time. But this has been a, a great event, and we'll jump over, and we'll see you real soon. Hey, EVH Gear TV and Eddie Van Halen fans. If you are like me, you find the time to read books difficult. Why not have it read to you? Grab one of three critically acclaimed Van Halen audiobooks like Van Halen Rising by Greg Grenoff, Running with the Devil by Noel Monk, or Everybody Wants Some by Ian Christie, available right now from Audible. Sign up for a free trial with zero obligation to get any one of these three audiobooks today. You can cancel if you wish after your trial membership expires and keep the book. There are many other great titles to choose from as well. Links in the description below, but just remember audibletrial.com slash TV. Click the link below and go grab your first free audiobook. Thank you for listening to this edition of EVH and Gear TV. This episode is being brought to you in part by VanHalenStore.com. Shop VanHalenStore.com for the largest selection of official Van Halen merchandise and memorabilia. Be sure to check out our website at evhgeardiscussion.com for more updates and follow us on social media.